Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. On today's episode, I'm excited to welcome a guest who not only is a champion of queer horror, they've made it their actual calling card. As the host, programmer, and co-creator of Portland's ongoing LGBTQIA exclusive film series aptly titled Queer Horror, they've been spreading the spooky gospel for years, and also weekly engages in the topic as co-host of the celebrated podcast Gay Lords of Darkness. An acclaimed writer and performer, they've also been the force behind such live shows as Looking for Tiger Lily and Clown Down Failed to Mount. Please welcome to the show multidisciplinary artist, writer, performer, and filmmaker Anthony Hudson, otherwise known as drag sensation Carla Rossi. (laughs) Sensation is such a strong burning word. (laughs) See, but I knew coming out of the gate you were even going to ping me on that, and that's why I planned to do it. Because I know that you prefer the term drag clown. But I yes. view Carla as a drag icon, honestly, because <laughs> not not many people do what you do. Well, thank you. That's a very nice way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, before we jump into things, how, how's life in this strange, you know, the, the prologue of a, a dystopian science fiction novel that we're living right now? I just, I guess I thought an apocalypse would be so much cooler, you know? Um, it's it's really, all things said, despite the crushing uh, uncertainty and uh, deaths and general malaise and terror uh, of right now, I have to say, I've had... I've had a pretty busy couple of years, and I haven't been able to take a break, so right now I am, like, just trusting in myself to think of this and challenging myself to just consider this a um a residency i'm taking a break and that feels nice but how how is it that it has to come at catastrophic cataclysmic capitalist collapse so well maybe that's you know the biggest indictment of all that the only time we socially culturally mentally physically have been able to actually stop and take pause mm-hmm. is is when our world is literally ground to a a nigh fatal halt. Mm-hmm. It's like maybe we need to stop and look at ourselves and be like, why was this it? Why do we not value the human condition and you know each other enough? Yeah, yeah. Get out of that abusive relationship with capitalism, baby girl. <laughs> <laughs> the truest horror of all. the greatest of horror, absolutely. Uh, so why don't we just leap right in? You know, we were already talking about horror, so we'll kick the show off the same way I start every show with the same first question I ask every guest, and it's simply this. Why horror? And you can interpret that however you want. Why does horror appeal to you? Why do you think genre audiences are drawn to it? But why horror? Oh, I'm so excited. Um, okay, why horror? I'm gonna say I horror. I'm talking countdown. I'm talking I murders. I'm talking talk.com for murder. Uh, so that's my latent inner Stacy Ponder coming out. Uh, I horror is terrible, but it makes me laugh. Um, why horror? Uh, you know, I think for me, it's, it's, I, I view horror as something intrinsically queer. Like I, a lot of people talk about queer horror as a subgenre or like uh, this, this niche within a larger thing. Right. And I think, no, I, I re- kind of refute that. I think horror is queer, has always been queer. I think a lot of uh, us, you, your listeners know this. Um, it's an intrinsic, intrinsically queer art form. And, um, for me, that goes back to childhood. I mean, I've been drawn to horror since I was a little kid watching Beetlejuice um, until the TV turned green. 
uh, I fell in love with this sort of moralizing kind of fairy tale um, thing that I was watching in front of my eyes where everything was magical and fantastic uh, and larger than life. Um, I mean, you combine you combine the beauty and the and the surreality of horror, especially as a child watching it and seeing these grotesque but also unbelievable and wonderful images that kind of show that the world can be so much greater than it looks just staring out at it sometimes. Combine that with um, everything it has to really say about being a human being um, when you get a little older and begin to really think about these films and themes and what they're saying. And it's it's a I think it's a wonderful place to be located in the world in terms of of making work and and thinking about um, how to express some really deep seated human issues. I really like that you talked about the beauty of horror because it is there, but it's something that people don't always zero in on. But mm-hmm. there there is a beauty because there is a lens of the fantastic, and and when you look at things through that lens. As you said, it's it's always more heightened. It's bigger. It's it's maybe otherworldly or whatever word you want to use for it. But I think that the the beauty that lies within horror is also sort of the same thing that draws us to fairy tales as children. Absolutely, because there is that kind of commonality of of maybe a moral or a, a morsel to learn hidden in something big mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so i don't know i just think that's like really cool because most people like they talk about the grotesque and odd stuff but that you cute clued into the beauty early on that's cool well yeah i think you know i was really drawn i think what really drew me to horror was it like it, it was that fairy tale component i think we we have these conversations of like well what what draws us to horror as queers or why why do we watch horror films and, you know, a lot of people put forward this, like, the kind of sensorium idea of, like, this is a place where um, we're able to safely experience fear and catharsis. And I think that's part of it. But for me, it's really getting to see grand stories um, and getting to, to go back to that sort of, like, like when you were a kid. And I, I just remember, for me, one of the, I think, the greatest... Um, grievances of coming out of childhood is like losing that ability to just like snap your mind and go into play like at recess or or on the playground like just being able to be like quick everything's hot lava it's hot lava monster you know and you kind of lose that as you get older but for me like horror films and fairy tales and they all kind of go immediately back to that kind of wondrous magical place um where we're so much more and and for me, I think growing up as a little gay kid, like seeing seeing that and then seeing that also alongside like um, Disney villains. I mean, yes, granted, I do drag. So obviously there's a core root there. But like Disney villains, they were so much larger than life, like horror films. They had horrific aesthetics to them sometimes. And they got to do so much more and they got to be so much more interesting than just like the princess or the, the knight or the prince, you know? Yeah, well, and it's funny, too, because we realize later as adults how many Disney villains were queer-coded. And you're right. Like, as as little queer kids, we were attracted to that and maybe didn't understand why. But I I think it's funny because, you know, here's Disney 
that generally, you know, whatever someone's relationship to Disney is, I know a lot of people are super, super into it. Like, but you cannot deny whether you are a big Disney person or anti-Disney that they are a big part of the establishment. They are the mainstream. And so when a place like Disney has only villains really as the queer coded characters, I think they thought they were saying something <laughs> like that maybe was supposed to be negative. But what we saw were people who sort of reflected who we were. Like they're on the outside of this of society. They're not necessarily accepted, but they don't care. They're living large and living their big like Ursula doesn't give a shit that she's not part of the party. Like, you know, like... she's her own party, her and her little eel pals. Exactly. Yeah. And, and you know, it's it's I think that's sort of the magic of uh, the magic of queerness, where it's like we're because we don't get to see ourselves. I mean, now now generations moving forward. Well, if we continue to have media. Well, are seeing themselves represented and are seeing actual depictions and sometimes even played by people who align with their identities. Um, But growing up, for me, I mean, that really was a rarity and that only really began to happen way later in my teenage years and then my 20s. Um, And it, 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 I think being able to zero in as a little queer kid or burgeoning queer and see... um, we kind of shift things and we kind of take our own internal interior read of things that are operating uh, in the background of texts, you know, subtext. And we began to form our own queer language around that. And, and I think those Disney villains are a huge part of it where we kind of retwist the intention of the makers. Well, maybe this monstrous woman is actually an icon to be adored and to, to mimic, um, to, to, for me, it was those it was those Disney villains, and it was going back to Beetlejuice. I mean, Delia Dietz, she's the reason I'm an artist. Catherine O'Hara as as the sculptor who <laughs> says this is my art and it is dangerous. Like, I, I I think the film does like her, and I think Tim Burton wasn't really making fun of her. I think he cast Catherine O'Hara because he knew he needed a brilliant comedic actress to make this role work. Um, but I think. Back in the 80s, I think, you know, a different culture and a different demographic of audience viewer would watch that and would see Delia as sort of the villain or as a monster or as like a funny uh, New York yuppie artist cliche. Um, but for me, like, I got the wrong message as a kid where it's like Lydia was great, but I always wanted to be Delia. And, you know, when I was older and watching it when I finally got to put it on a big screen uh, on my own accord with my my program. Um, I was able to zero in, zero in on little details I never saw before on that giant screen because I only watched it on like VHS tapes and seeing Delia and realizing that at the end you can see she got an Art in America cover at the end of the movie. Like I cried seeing that because I was so <laughs> proud of her. Well, you know, I don't think I've talked with anyone about sort of the the, the queer legacy of Delia Dietz. I mean, I, I, most queer people who love Beetlejuice love Catherine O'Hara, oh, yeah. of course. But there is something when you kind of peel back the layers of that character that she, in some ways, is is emblematic of, of queer identity more than, than most mm-hmm. because she comes to this place and everyone's trying to tell her, no, you have to sort of fit in with the mold here and you have to accept the aesthetic of this place and you have to be this. And it's like, no, this is my space, my home, my art. Why should I fit into the box that you want me to just because we now live in a Better Homes and Gardens cover magazine? Mm-hmm. 
And, you know, and she, along with Otho, who, you know, clearly is a queer-coded character as well, they just are like, no, we want to live our big gay fantasy, whatever that is, and we're not going to let that stop us just because we're here. Yeah, they're doing the best they can with Charles Dietz's patriarchy, right? Where it's Delia Dietz is a is a successful New York feminist artist, um, and she gets... Dr- torn out of that environment out of her environment where she flourishes she gets pulled out of that and put into this little podunk town in this house on a hill that's full of dead people and she's gonna make do with what she can this is my house and if you don't let me gut it out and make it my own i will go insane and take you with me (laughs) i love her (laughs) exactly and you know what i would kill to have a a delia deets original piece of art Oh, that's the dream. That's the dream. Just, just, and and try to put it up into a crane into my house and just let me watch as it as it traps me against the wall when the crane breaks. <laughs> I mean, honestly, like there are worse ways to go. Really, I mean, who wants to die for art? Me, if it's Delia Dietz's. Exactly. Now, I mean, and this general question that I don't know that there's an answer to because why would either of us know this? I would love to know what happened to the art that was created for the movie. Oh my. God, hunt it down, everyone. Get on eBay now and tell us immediately what you find. Well, like, is it just, like, in Tim Burton's, like, sitting garden? I assume he's got a sitting (laughs) garden. Like, you know, like, he seems like the kind of guy that would, right? I Absolutely. Um, He's, like, out there eating, like, really not great tea cakes and (laughs) is, like, staring at Delia Dietz's art. Just this little sad day goth surrounded by Delia Dietz accoutrement. Exactly, exactly. Um, Now, you said something earlier that I really, uh, I'm into, and I've I've often believed this myself, and it's the idea that horror has always been queer, and I agree with that. But it's interesting, and I, I want your take on this, because I'm sure you've noticed in recent years, there has sort of been this discussion, if you will, this idea that queer horror is now finally rising to prominence or like the time for queer horror is now and i always am kind of like no the time for queer horror has been always just because the gatekeepers are now aware that we're a thing doesn't mean we have not always been here so what what's sort of your take on the kind of like nouveau discussion on all of this yeah i mean i'm absolutely right there with you i mean the time for queer horror was 1920s germany (laughs) Like, right. if, if if you look at, at the development, I mean, this, this, this art form has existed and has belonged to queer people since its inception. And, and I mean, I'm, when I think about that, I trace it all the way back to the work of the Gothicists. Um, Gothic writers were talking about this longing uh, for the other and, and transposing that against the sublimity of nature. Um, and it was it was there was always this sort of flirtation with the monstrous and with the forbidden, um, and all that lined up with with the beginnings of of um, gender revolution and sexual revolution and development and romance and and all this set against the industrial revolution. Um, the Gothicists and the the that sort of theme then the this idea of using monsters to talk about difference. Um, really i think came to life with with the work of these early horror filmmakers with james whale and fw murnau 
um, talking about, like, using Frankenstein, James Whale using Frankenstein to talk about a monster who was made a monster by other people. He's smart. He can read. He can speak. Um, he's terrified of fire. He doesn't, doesn't know why they're trying to kill him. Um, F.W. Murnau, you know, used Nosferatu and Count Orlok to talk about this this sense of internalized um, loathing and also forbiddenness of his own homosexuality as an out gay film director in, in 1920s Germany. Um, horror has always been queer. And and all the way down when you look at these, these really formative films like the work of James Whale, like going all the way into uh, Old Dark House or Bride of Frankenstein, like these set up all of the tropes for how we would talk about monsters they created the visual vocabulary and all that informed um everything that we use to create all the tools that we make horror with today like i i I love looking at death becomes her i consider death becomes her a queer horror film it's it's a that's a universal monsters movie just where the the monsters are women with agency (laughs) and it but it otherwise it applies all the gothic traditions to its execution uh, yeah. Yeah, it, and it's so interesting that, like, now some of these folks who run studios and, and I, I, you know, credit where credit's due, people are, are trying and, and they are becoming aware. And I would rather people become aware now than not, than remain ignorant, you know. But it is interesting when there's all of a sudden this conversation where people are like, oh, yeah, well, I guess that queer people are part of horror. I'm like, yeah, no. Always. And and what you're talking about takes us all the way to the beginning of cinema. Yeah. But also our involvement in genre goes beyond that. I always I always talk about how you mentioned the Gothicist. Sheridan Lafanu writes Carmilla a good 35 years before Bram Stoker pens Dracula. It's about a lesbian vampire. Mm-hmm. And again, much like that Disney villain thing, I'm sure there was probably socio- like societally and culturally, they thought they were saying something making this vampirist who's stalking young maidens, uh, uh, you know, a lesbian. Uh, I'm sure they thought they were saying something, but what people instead saw was this empowerment of other. And Bram Stoker saw that and essentially started writing fan fiction that became Dracula. So you do not have the world's most famous vampire without a lesbian vampire first. Like, we are everywhere. Yeah, oh my God, Bram Stoker is Stephanie Meyer, and he was doing his own Fifty Shades. I had no idea. (laughs) Oh, that's so funny. Yeah, and and, you know, it's like the... um, it's interesting too, because what was the intention of those of those writers and thinkers and artists that m- made that? Like, you know, a lot of the times, and we can look at it as maybe they were uh, creating this work um, with the reverse end, where they were actually cre- they were they were um, trying to create fear tales about this sort of lifestyle or these these characters, um, or maybe you know they found a way to talk about and to address issues that they really wanted to grapple with, like being different or being queer. Um, although it was a completely different understanding of identity in those terms back then, but like sure. they they would they could then find a way to mold it and present it to society in a way that was digestible, that was moralizing, um, but to still exercise and to still talk about these really real human things that otherwise would be kind of forbidden to address. Um, and I think that's where, that's where my favorite part of queer horror came from, or, you know, kind of arose out of was this, this place of coding and subtext and uh, longing glances, you know? 
Do you have a favorite coded horror film of yesteryear? You know, the moment, the instance I always go back to, and, and showing films at Queer Horror has really helped me zero in on, on the films that do this the best, um, and that really, where this where it really comes to life, because when you put 400 queer people in a movie theater to watch a horror film, you're all going to dial into the same moments. Um, the one that really gets me, there's so many, but the one that I just go back to time and again is Fright Night. I love, I love, love, love Fright Night so much. But that sequence when Evil Ed, who was played by gay porn star Stephen Jeffries, we all know, um, Evil Ed is invited under the vampire's cloak by Jerry Dandridge. And he says something along the lines of like, you'll never have to worry about being bullied ever again. And, And it's so funny how for, I think, 80s society, you could watch that and they could just think like, oh, gross, he's going to bite him. <laughs> or, you know, it's like this kind of gay panic moment, perhaps even. But for a, a queer viewer watching that, you know what it's like to be bullied. You 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 get this sense of, of being taken under the cape of a man with big, strong arms. <laughs> and you're 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 given safety and power um, and escape. And for me, like that, that exact sequence is one of, I think, one of the most powerful bits of subtextual queerness. Oh, it's so good. And I think that Fright Night is just an overwhelmingly queer movie. Oh, my God. In, in general. That cast. I mean, you have three char- queers as the principals. <laughs> like, it's wild. Right. And then, you know, when you watch it as an adult, the things that you don't clue into as a kid, the idea that Jerry Dandridge and his his manservant or whatever, you know, what we refer <laughs> yeah, to. Yeah, like they roommate. Move, <laughs> yeah. He mo- they move into the neighborhood under the guise of being antique collectors. <laughs> and it's sort of like the subtle, there's a subtlety there that like, if you're like a child, you're like, okay, sure. But as a gay adult, I'm like, oh. Like they're really trying to lay it in. Thick. It's like um, but, it's like uh, uh, Mr. Barlow and and James Mason in Salem's Lot there with their antique store. <laughs> Anytime two men move in with antiques in in tow, you know that something's up. They're gay vampires. I know that's the old Hollywood wink. Like oh, they like antiques. <laughs> wink a wink. Nudge nudge. Um. So. We're talking a little bit about your your journey with the movies and and your appreciation and your hosting of them, as well as you talked about that early fascination with the beauty and the engagement of horror. So let's let's go back to your beginnings, though. Like when you were engaging with, with these movies and these stories, at what point did you realize that just watching uh, or reading was not enough and that you wanted to be an artist? Was there a pivotal moment? Oh, my God. Uh, you know... I don't even know if there was a point where I really like snapped onto it and was like, I am an artist. This is what I will do. I think I've spent a lot, a lot of my life because we make fun of artists, just like we make fun of scientists or, you know, (laughs) people that make work in this world that isn't um, immediately digestible. Like, right. So I think I've spent a long time learning to just identify myself actually and to use the word artist. Uh, That that took a while. But I've always, I've always, uh, I've always lived up to that Delia thing. If you don't let me express myself, I'll go insane and take you with me. (laughs) Like that, that's kind of been my, my manifesto or my mission statement ever since I saw Beetlejuice. So I've always, like as a kid, I was always um, 
imagining and I was always going off to other places. Uh, I really, my, you mentioned looking for Tiger Lily in that very sweet bio. And that's my show about growing up half white and half native and gay and a fat kid and seeing white people play play natives in uh, the 1960 production of Peter Pan starring Mary Martin. And I, when I wasn't watching Beetlejuice, I was watching that production of Peter Pan. Um, and with that, like, I, I began to see um, even more. I, I saw the same magic that I saw in Beetlejuice, but in Never Neverland. So I would like to, I, I would take myself to Never Neverland in my mind with like my stuffed animals. And I, I had a super crazy active imagination, which I think most kids do. Um, and then as I got older, that turned into like comics and that turned into plays and that turned into um, just... I've always, I've always wanted to express myself and my creativity in, in however mode seemed the most appropriate for whatever I wanted to say, if it's a picture or if it's a story or if it's me acting out something or doing voices or, I mean, God forget, never, never give a gay kid a, a, a microphone or a sound recorder as a teenager um, because you're going to get the <laughs> most grotesque radio dramas. And like... Uh, so that's all, that's always been my mode. And I, I think, I think it was really, I've spent a lot of my life trying to actually embrace and just say, yeah, I am an artist. And really, I guess really that happened when I, when I went into art school, I finally challenged myself to say, okay, I went in as an illustrator. I came out a drag clown thing. (laughs) And (laughs) I think that's when I learned like, okay, there are a lot of different ways to make art. And it's all art. And I'm not even going to try bothering to label this writing or label this theater or label this film or video. You know, it's all my art. Um, Right. Uh, So I want to ask you about Looking for Tiger Lily, because in in the conversation that we're having, you mentioned that that sort of was born out of your childhood obsession with the Mary Martin Peter Pan (laughs) And how there was a lack of native representation in that that version of it, but you loved it, but you also recognized that. Oh, yeah. And I'm I'm in, I'm interested because this is a conversation that I think happens a lot now in the internet with this sort of I don't want to say cancel culture because that's too buzzwordy, <laughs> but, but I think for anybody who exists in a marginalized identity, we grew up a lot of times without representation of our own. So we had to sort of project ourselves onto other things until such time came that we could fight for it or push for it or whatever. But it also means in a way that we had to embrace what maybe would be problematic faves. And just, I guess maybe talk to me about that journey from this thing that you love to taking it and turning it into a live piece that sort of confronts a lack of representation in in white pop culture. Yeah, yeah, and I mean that's what the show is. It's it's me. It's a storytelling cabaret. Um, it's me talking about growing up and kind of transposing the stories of me growing up versus my father growing up and how we had completely different um, experiences with him as a as a just more more. I mean, to be honest, more native looking person um, growing up in a native community. Um, versus me growing up in a suburb with white kids and being half white and and then looking at pop culture instances of how I'd only seen myself and I'd only seen my culture as outside of when I'm with my family or at powwows 
I'd only seen my culture depicted through, like, Disney's Pocahontas or Cher's Half-Breed. I mean, if you get to problematic faves, Cher's Half-Breed. Oh, my God. I love Cher. (laughs) But, like, but there's also people that, you know, can't even deal with that song. And I think that's very valid. Um, I... I, when I do the show looking for Tiger Lily and I'm and I'm showing video from the the Mary Martin production where Sandra Lee's up there basically like Jerry blanking her way through this performance as an Indian princess quotation marks um, people come up to me after the show and they're like wow yeah I never realized how messed up Peter Pan was you're right I'll never show my kids that and I'm like no no do show them it's like one we can't you can't just whitewash the past. You need these you need these examples to be accountable and to remember what we're capable of and what we do to people. Um but also the thing I have to convey to people constantly is I still love that production of Peter Pan. I still love when they sing Uggawug, which is yes, like faux native jargon. Um I I love that production and it it takes me back to being a kid. Um I think I think as as queer people, you know, like you said, we do we latch on and we find the representation that we've got. Um, I was never a fan of Pocahontas, but I love Sandra Lee as Tiger Lily because she was funny. She was so clowny. It was like a it was like a cartoon character. Um, like I mean, I said she was Jerry blanking her way through it, and it was very Amy Sedaris. And I think with horror too, like I see, I I I, I kind of love sometimes the negative representations uh a little bit more than i like um the love simons out there you know pardon my sure <laughs> implicating famous work but like so i would i would rather go with an angela than a from sleepaway camp than a love simon any day because i'm like girl is activating her agency she's killing all those people that were assholes to her i believe <laughs> i believe in angela <laughs> and she is a woman and she says she is <laughs> like so it's 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 sometimes there's so much meteor stuff that actually is easier to even connect with or relate to as the outsider when you're seeing those depictions um is there time over? Yeah, probably, hopefully. Um, but they're also they're also part of like some of those stories or characters or things are part of how we landed and got to the place we are now, and we've incorporated those into our identities and into our humor. Um, so I think, like everything, it just requires a little bit more critical thinking than just a blanket statement of whether it's okay or not, right? It's true, and I think that. What is happening, too, is when you look at it with a critical eye, it, it, it engenders a conversation that just wiping something away doesn't. And it's sort of like this has come up in a couple episodes recently, the 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 trans discussion around sleepaway camp. And I want trans people to lead that discussion. And I want them to be able to speak Mm -hmm. to what works about the film and what does not work about the film, rather than just have some, you know, ivory tower of academia or film, you know, purity or whatever, you know, say, well, that's in the past and it's problematic and we just don't talk about it anymore. But maybe we should. Maybe we need to. Just like you're saying, you know, Tiger Lily should never be played by a white person again but this already exists let's talk about why yeah yeah exactly and i mean like like something i argue in the show is like you know tiger lily is she is even if you cast a native as her like i i have a friend um lauren gunderson did a great play at the at this dc um, shakespeare theater 
where she rewrote Tiger Lily for an indigenous actor. And like, I actually helped her and consulted with her on it to help create this new character. And what she did with the role is really great. But like, unless you're actively going in and you're working with native people and you're hiring native people and you're making this collaborative in terms of how you're depicting this character, let's not forget that Tiger Lily was created as a racist cartoon, like living cartoon, like in every aspect of Peter Pan. Um, she was never native to begin with. She was a white person's depiction of every identity collected under the order of the British Empire. So, like, and and just getting rid of it is not enough. That's not, that's an act of cowardice. That's not actually accountability. So, like, um, even keeping on this sort of red face train, you know, like, Lando Lakes just removed the Lando Lakes butter lady from their package. Um they never said why they did it. They said, we've got new packaging to to point out the importance of the farmers who we get our butter from. Uh, but they never actually made a statement explaining why they took her off the package, why they took this native mascot off the package. So now this blank package, they, they literally just deleted her and it's the same background. It's just the background. The package now just points to her absence. Um and nobody addresses the fact that 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 character, I mean, that mascot, whether it's red face or not, was designed by an Ojibwe artist in the 1950s. And now that history has just vanished. It's just erased. And look at the good we do. Right. And it's, it, it, would it not be better to address it than just act like it didn't happen? Exactly. Like, I mean, you drive around Germany, there's a reason there are monuments and plaques everywhere. So they don't forget. True, true. Um, but with that in mind, I and I'm I'm just going to put this out there. I still think that in terms of of, of native and indigenous representation in pop culture, we kind of suck still. Like it's not we we need much more. Oh right? man, I mean, listen, we just got Blood Quantum, and I am so excited. Um, we need a hundred times more. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It there like, I mean, when I tell people when people don't understand the importance of representation and what it what it means, like, um, I, I'm a video gamer, too. And infamous Second Son, I think I think that was that game was the first time I've actually played a native character in a video game. <laughs> like, that was the first time I've played someone like me in a game, uh, with the exception of Turok. But I don't think that really counts. <laughs> so like, <laughs> it, it's it's and it's dizzying to actually be able to push buttons on a controller and to move someone that looks like you and that is that you identify with their family when the game starts i was like oh my god they're actually in a longhouse like i couldn't believe what i was seeing and that shouldn't be a surprise because this is the life i live um but we i think as as marginalized people as queer people as women as as people of color like we are um, we see ourselves in, as the world sees us in opposition to them. And we right. get this double consciousness, right? Um, and so our whole lives is trying to figure out how to unlearn that and how to embrace who we really are and what and, and create our own narratives of what we are and what we look like and what our stories are and what we're capable of. Because we've never had that before, except in our own traditions that were sometimes beaten out of us or killed out of us. Um, so, I mean, now is, now is the time to just get as much out there as we can. And it's beautiful that we're beginning to see that happen. Um, and I, I, it's also funny to see the clapback that happens where people 
normative society that feels threatened by seeing representation, by seeing um, trans people using bathrooms, um, they immediately think things are being taken away by them because they've had full control of everything, of all the stories up until just now, now that they're being asked to share some space. Right. And that's actually a great transition point to something I was going to talk to you about because uh, and it, it sort of leads us closer to, to your present day as well. Um, the idea that, you know, I'm sure you saw recently with the announcement that the Boulay brothers are doing a podcast on Fangoria yeah. Radio, there was some backlash from Fango readers who were like, ah, oh, you're covering drag and all, you know, we don't, this is not what we signed up for. Drag has nothing to do with horror. <laughs> and, and from your laughter, I think you know where I'm going. But let me ask you, Carla Rossi, curator of queer horror. <laughs> tell me what drag has to do with horror and why this is not a new idea. You know what? You try putting on 18 pairs of tights, high heels, 6 to 12 inches, a wig glued onto your head, eyelashes encaging your eyes not unlike one Malcolm McDowell in a clockwork orange, grease paint slathered across your face and you can feel yourself sweating down it, but somehow it's not running because you're covered in chemicals that you'll probably die from. Clown lung is a real thing, I'll have you know. And let me tell you, what is not horrifying about that? Drag is horror, essentially. It's distilled horror. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, preach. That's everything I wanted out of my life. No, it's true, though. And that's it. It's like, you know, drag and horror have walked hand in hand forever. I mean, obviously, I think there is a kinship because they both come from places of heightened reality. Yeah, yeah. And there's a there's an overlap of, uh, yeah, exaggeration of camp. Um, of artifice of of caricature. Uh, I think a lot of horror finds a, a, a symbolic and artistic, a metaphoric way to talk about what is happening in the world. I mean, God forbid that we say, oh, why does everything have to go and be political? But let's be real, baby girl. If you've seen any horror movie, you're watching a political statement. Dawn of the Dead, Rosemary's Baby, Silence of the Lambs, even the Texas Chainsaw fucking Massacre, right? Like every one of these horror films is talking about an underlying social issue. There is politics to all of them because the world is innately, what? Political. Uh, Drag does the exact same thing drag is a way of wearing and sometimes mocking sometimes lampooning sometimes satirizing sometimes critiquing normative ways of living that's why i do drag as carla like i and i do this weird white-faced clown thing i i claim to be the whitest lady this side of lake oswego which is a very well-to-do suburb of portland oregon where i live um and and Carla as the ghost of white privilege, and that's hilarious because it will never die. That's her line, or her line, not mine. <laughs> um, it, like, for me, it's it's a way to take everything that I saw projected on me, like I uh, of um, people interfacing with me as white or male or uh, just any expectation that you get of someone walking down the street. And she's my way of turning that all on its head. And I want people, I want those same people walking by me on the street. When they say Car- when they see Carla, I want them to be just as confused by her as I am about myself every single day. As someone that fits into all these different identity boxes. And sometimes doesn't fit in either in, in, or any entirely. And drag is a way to take the world and reframe it and laugh at it 
and offer alternatives and solutions and to draw together in space to 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 see realities and possibilities that might not otherwise be uh, capable that might not seem possible it's a way to say okay this is who i am right now but what if i was this it's it's that same place of going back to play of being a child of possibility Oh, and I love it. And I love the idea that you take something so heightened and exaggerated, but it also in a way is so true because by creating this larger than life thing, you're forcing people to look at something that maybe they normally would have to turn, they would choose to turn away from. Like drag and horror are both confrontational art forms in that way. And uh, I think that's awesome. Now, like you mentioned, Carla was born out of art school. Like you went in to illustrate, you came out Carla Rossi. So tell me a little bit about the creation of her. We're in, was, was Carla always Carla's name or did, did you go through it? It was very early on. I, we were part of a, we were, there was an artist duo, um, me and my friend Aaron, and we called ourselves the tampon troupe because we were white and absorbent. Um, we painted ourselves <laughs> white because I was doing, uh, I had filmed this little zombie short at the time and, and um, I only had white makeup. Uh, white grease paint left over from adding some like highlight tones and so we got invited to a drag party we slapped on this this white gross drag we slapped on some fake blood Um, everyone thought we were zombies but our idea was we were like just these ancient calcified um, white women that were just bleeding uncontrollably because they were so much older than they had any right to be and we 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 just kind of became these confrontational horror drag personas we just fully embodied these other characters these just different people i had been living a small life at that point like i i um i I think coming from a small town and being a gay kid and um being mixed race and just feeling so different and like i would never fit in i was kind of conditioned to to not want to be seen and to 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 sort of stick to the to the walls and scale my way past people and past rooms of people. Cause I think a lot of growing up gay and queer is growing up modifying ourselves and watching our behaviors so that people won't kill us. Right. And so I was working, I moved up to Portland. I was working at the mall. I wanted to go to art school, but I was too afraid to apply. Um, and then I met Jinx Monsoon. She's a Portlander. Any claim to otherwise is a lie. Um, and, <laughs> and, uh, I met her, she was pretty early into her career and I was just blown away by everything she was doing. I was watching this person that was fully embodying a character that was, um, acting, singing, dancing, doing stand up comedy, writing her own monologues, uh, making her own work, writing her own roles because, you know, she, she's an actor and she wasn't getting the work that she really wanted to do like men's roles in theater are so boring women's roles there's so much more there's it's like with 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 disney villains you want the meaty juicy role um i saw her using drag to do that and i was so inspired so we followed suit i started doing this um at first it kind of was my Lindsay lohan moment where it was like i was my freshman year of, of art school um, I was getting so drunk. I black out so many nights. I was a total mess. It was just an excuse to completely be a different person. Um, we were getting ready for a show and, and Aaron looks over and says, you look like a Carla. And I thought, mm, okay, okay. So what would her last name be? Because drag queen names have to be kind of punny. And I was like, oh, Carla Rossi, like the bottom shelf. She's salty wine. 
And <laughs> and so I was on the bottom shelf for a while. Uh, but then my, my queer professors at art school were like, so you're always showing up late to class. You're always like have white face paint caked in your hair. What's going on? Um, I told them I was doing this other thing and I was getting booked to do shows and people were asked, we were crashing parties and then people would ask us to come back. Um, and my professors were like, okay, why are you pretending that you want to just do illustration? Like you're, you're okay with that, but there's this other thing you're so passionate about, bring it into school. And it was over that time that I really learned how Carla could be an application to talk about so many more serious things while being funny and making the kind of thing I wanted to make. Um, without just also being a drunk mess, so. <laughs> and and when did queer horror begin? How did what was the transition? Into oh that? my god, my baby, my baby, my kid! Queer horror is is everything to me. Um, it's one of my favorite things to do besides gay lords, and it uh started in 2015. This was our five years. We we hit five years this year and we were actually hey. yeah, we were we were going to celebrate in March with a fifth anniversary party and we were gonna show the lure, um, the killer killer Polish mermaid musical, which I, I love that movie so much. I had my I love Oh, it. it's so good and and so gay. And I had my blue I was gonna be the singer, the nightclub singer, played by King of Price, and I had my glue my blue glitter disco suit all ready to go for our opening pre-show um and then you know the world completely shifted so we have not celebrated officially our five year yet but we are at five years um it started in 2015 i applied for a residency that my my now i had now graduated from my art school from pnca and they opened up a residency program with the hollywood theater which was me and my my partner jason that was our favorite place to go see movies um, it's an old, gorgeous, like 90, at that point, 90-year-old movie house um, that was taken over and run by a nonprofit and, and treated as like a historical building and um, used as, a, as an archive for film. And, and they specialize in 35 millimeter. Um, and so I thought, I have to apply for this. I, you, you, they would ask you to submit some programming ideas. And I said, I want to do queer horror. Um, I wanted to put on a short film festival and I wanted to in put queer performances of drag performances in between the short films. And all of this came from back then I had this question of why are so many queers obsessed with horror? What draws us to it? Um, is it identifying with the monster? Is it the safety of being able to watch terror happen? Uh, I wanted to figure it out. And so we put on this open call short film festival um we got great shorts from like the Soska sisters and um and peaches christ and who is a huge icon of mine um and then down the line i've heard of her i mean oh my god she's like the best and then down the line <laughs> we we sort of start we started showing features i my residency ended the hollywood asked me to do more they said can you do this every month and i said well i would die from that but let's do it every other month and maybe let's also start showing feature films and i'll put on a, a show before um i was really inspired by midnight mass um, by what peaches was doing down in san francisco and uh, and I, I loved this the aesthetic of the horror host, the horror hostess, like Elvira. I mean, she's my favorite drag queen. Um, 
followed next next favorite drag queen the crypt keeper so like i i i was so in love with what what these icons were doing with horror and how it became a site for clowns to entertain people and to be silly and to put on a show and to celebrate our spookiness and what makes us weird it's kind of that punk like okay culture says we're weirdos so let's be let's be weirdos um we are the weirdos mister and I, 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 ever since then, for five years, we've been doing it. The shows have gotten bigger and bigger. It started out that I would just show, like, a video and then get on stage and do a quick act. Um, now we, we do, you know, 10 to 15 to 20 to 25 minute one acts that I write. I get amazing, um, no, like, non-binary and trans performers and, um, and female assigned um, burlesque stars and drag kings and we try to shake it up and keep it as diverse as we can and we turn them into actors in what feels like a RuPaul's Drag Race main stage challenge like rehearsing the show the day of two hours before the audience comes in and we make a little bit of weird gay funny magic happen on stage it's my it's like church it's my favorite thing to do well, I mean, it is church in the way that you're worshiping at the altar of these movies that you love. Yeah. But also, it's the idea, you know, when, when we call movies cult movies, what we really mean is community. Yes. Uh, because there's a community around these films. And I think the, the queer community around these films is even stronger. Because if you're not from one of the big cities, like so many people aren't, and you're finding your identity, it's like... Before you even know to find other queer people, it's like, how do you find your people? You like Rocky Horror? Me too. Oh, John John Waters? Great. I love him. Like, no one else knows who he is here in, you know, Massapequa. <laughs> but like, and it's like, that was it. That was sort of our early connection to find our tribe. And so to see what you do with queer horror or, you know, what Peaches does with Midnight Mass, it really speaks to that communal experience and i think why it's so joyous is because who gets it more than we do we needed that in ways that some people oh my god absolutely and like it's that community what i love about theater i mean i i make a lot of theater and and queer horror while it's like a, a film screening it's also a hybrid performance theater space and it's it's just this weird thing and also so many of our bars in Portland have been gentrified out of existence. I mean, right now everything is closed, but like most of our gay bars vanished. And so we queer, queer culture and performance culture in Portland, Oregon became a pop-up, like a nomadic culture. So the Hollywood and, and queer horror became one of the foremost uh, drag events and, and queer events in town. Um, One of the happiest days of my life was when the Portland Mercury, a weekly here, uh, wrote and i it's now in our like film trailer where you can watch about our little queer horror reel and everything they said um queer horror is a goddamn portland treasure and that made me really happy but like it's it's now that we we when we go and we do these shows we have a space where we're all tied together we're all energetically linked like i'm gonna sound woo woo here but with theater you know there it's not just about a performer up on stage performing at the audience it's a it's an exchange and you're all right. sharing in that space and that's i mean that's the power of drag that's why drag is like church for so many gay people going to nightclubs it's like 
there is a communal moment where you're there with like this keeper of oral tradition the drag queen or king you know it's like this is the high priestess they are the person that's going to offer lessons and or humor to the community they're the jester they're like the holy fool and in in with queer horrors particularly our, our film series which it's wild to me that as far as I can tell, we are the only regularly occurring LGBTQ plus horror film screening series in the country right now. Um, but when we're doing that, like we are all bound together and we are all noticing the exact same codes and bits of subtext and longing glances down hallways. We're all noticing the same um, uh, lesbian woman with her with her. Uh, butch haircut playing a mother in Friday the 13th part 7 we're all zeroing into the same details and it becomes so beautiful and the audience is rowdy they don't like talk at the screen that often it's not like a disrespectful screening it's not like a Rocky Horror Picture Show where we're throwing toilet paper up in the air and stuff but like it gets rowdy you can feel everyone's passion and excitement and the laughter is all shared at exactly the right moments and even watching these films that like, yeah, John Waters films that I would seek out um, in my late teenage years that I would read about on the internet and then on AOL and then seek out later. Um, <laughs> watching those alone can be so amazing and mind blowing, but then watching them with a mostly queer audience for the first time on a huge big screen in a, in an ancient movie house, like that is a, an experience unlike any other. So I show a lot of my favorite films because let's be real mama's got the giant tv and her own entertainment system and like so i'm showing what i want to watch but every time i watch these with an audience it's a brand new experience where i'll realize oh my god i didn't know how deeply this movie really is queer like there's moments i'll be like well is this what is death becomes her that actually queer and then watching it with the audience i'm like there's no yes. question. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a transformative experience. And it's because, you know, we don't get spaces like this that are afforded just for us. Usually it is just a bar or a pro- or pride. You know, we get a month for it. But being able to have a regular space where we can do this, I mean, that's the power of representation is representation and community. It's it's uh, there's nothing else like it. Well, and that's why what you do, I think, is is very important, because in this ongoing discussion of queer horror, we even though, as we said at the beginning, we have been involved in the genre forever and the, in, are, are linked to it with, without attachment no, forever. It has been tricky navigating in a world of gatekeepers and people who would brush us aside to have the spaces and to have the places that we can celebrate together and celebrate this unifying thing that we have. And I know that queer horror has become an institution in Portland, but as someone who has been working in the world of queer horror uh, as as a concept for for a long time, uh, what I think is really cool is when I'm out in the world and I see your logo, those lips, that were designed by Jason with, you know, the, with the yeah. queer horror lips. And I see, see people wearing them on buttons and on T-shirts. Like when I do a talk at Comic-Con or, a, you know, I'm out somewhere and I see it. It's like, okay, it's a movie series in Portland. But what it really is, is a unifying community that stretches so much farther. 
because it's an understanding and a celebration. And it's like, all I need to do is look across the room and see those lips and be like, that's my people right oh. there. And, and you provide a space for that. And not many places do anymore. You're talk, you talk about the gentrification. This is crucial. We need our spaces, not just as horror fans, but as queer people and as queer horror yeah. fans. I mean, to me, it's it's so so important. Yeah, it it and and I mean, in in lieu of the world completely shifting, it'll be interesting to see how we find ways to gather now. Um, what what we're going to do about about that? Um, but yeah, I think it. And that thank you for sharing. That is really beautiful, and so it means so much to me to hear about like just seeing our pins um, out in the world and like. That's the thing is like we don't we're not saying we own queer horror. I mean, I, I named it queer horror. I named it that after I was Jason made that painting of it's very Rocky Horror esque of the lips and instead of teeth you get these dripping letters saying queer horror in all caps. And I saw him make that painting and I thought I want to turn that into a film series and I want to celebrate queer horror as a genre. It's it's not we are queer horror. It's we are all queer horror. And how do we how do we how do we take over the world and 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 embrace the fact that this is not a subgenre this is a community and this is the art form um and you know i think hopefully you know that just spreads like an uncontrollable brush fire <laughs> well i like i said i think it has and i think you've got your message out there because i do see people who feel very part of that community wearing that emblem very proudly because you've made it very clear that it is for everyone. And one thing I do want to say that I really appreciate about you and the work you do, whether it's uh, something like Looking for Tiger Lily or your work as Carla at Queer Horror, is you're celebrating the things that you love, but there's always an element of activism to them that is crucial to the work because these are all things that, you know, it's good to go and celebrate and be amongst our communities, but then go away and think. And not every artist is able to walk that mm-hmm. line. And and we need people like you to do that. And and you, you kick so much ass doing it. You know, I'm just a headstrong brat. And I spent too long as a teenager reading those goddamn Anne Rice Lestat novels that I just, <laughs> I've always done what I wanted to. But, you know, that's the thing, too, is people talk about, well, why does everything have to be political? And it's like, my whole life has been that. And that was put on me. Like, it's, as queer people, like, as, as, a, as a gay person, as a native person, um as a gender confused, I don't know what I am person. Like my, all of my identities, identities are politicized and are given to me as other by a mainstream political force. And so I have no choice for for it to be political. Like, and that's the other thing with drag and with, with a platform like queer horror, um, or, or even like what Stacy and I are doing on gay Lords of darkness. Like we, a microphone is a responsibility. With great grease paint comes great responsibility. Like this is, <laughs> we owe it to the people that have that listen to us to speak out. Um, and and I would hope any person that's afforded privilege to be listened to would do the same. Well, and since that's a great segue, you know, Stacy was just on the show. Uh, so why don't you tell me a little bit about Gay Lords of Darkness? 
uh, you know, for maybe listeners who who need to discover it and they need oh, to trust if, me. Listen, Please. get fall into the cult of briefcase woman. Um, Gaylords of Darkness. As I said, it's my it's my favorite thing to do next to queer horror. Um, I I feel really I feel so pinch me lucky sometimes where it's like I can't believe I was able to have an art career and have find a way to merge it with my greatest love, which is horror and um, and to make it all queer. And I can't believe I get to do queer horror and gay lords. Um, Stacy Ponder, who is I think one of one of my personal you know horror icons. Um, I was reading her blog Final Girl when I was this little gay kid hiding. Like I I, I ran away from two semesters at college when I was like eighteen. And I went and stayed in my parents' house and watched a Cindy Lauper tour DVD like every day for two weeks and cried. And and I found this. I was looking up horror blogs back in the Wild West days of the internet. And I found this horror blog that really cracked me up, and it was by a lesbian, by a gay person, and it was Stacy Ponder, and it was her blog, Final Girl. Um, and I just fell in love with everything she was doing. She made these hilarious movies, horror movies, like super low budget DIY queer punk horror films with like Lena Headey would star in them, and I really fell hard for them. And and actually, I I first approached Stacy when we when we did the very first queer horror, and I was like, can I show in Satan's Closet, your short film with Lena. Um, also, I'm a huge fan. Uh, love you so much. Thank you for everything you've ever done. You taught me how to be a queer horror fan <laughs> and and introduced me to some of my favorite films. And that sort of kickstarted our friendship. Um, and when she, after a while of doing Final Girl and then kind of taking a hiatus and then thinking about starting a podcast, she reached out to me and said, hey, I want to do this thing, but I don't want to just be me talking. Do you want to do it with me? And I lost my mind. I couldn't believe she was asking me. Um, and since then, you know, now it's been almost two years. I think it's it's just past a year and a half. Um, and I we've done too many episodes to count. And I, I we release it every Wednesday. And it's just us kind of. Stacy and I and a whole litany of characters that Stacy always voices and plays because. Um, I'm too I'm laughing too hard at everything Stacy is saying that I'm not able to even like come up with anything but um it, it's just us as two queer horror fags just like talking about uh what we love in the genre what we want to see shift in the genre all of our reads we're really drawn to coded queer horror films um we love the outright just it's all out there um, new representation of horror but we're also really drawn to that like kind of older more subtextual work and and a lot of it is us kind of thinking you know how can we celebrate women in horror too while doing all of that because uh, we're 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 really into like the dead girls that nobody wants to talk about so so it's us just celebrating our perfect queens and um having a really good time doing it it's really it's silly i'd like to think it's it's really funny i hope um and it's really stupid sometimes and we we talk about shitting ourselves and i mean i i still can't (laughs) believe we got we got to do a live show at the hollywood with amy Steele and adrian king on friday the 13th and we showed one and two on 35 and I lost my mind we like cried the entire weekend because we couldn't believe it but I still can't believe we talked about shitting and pissing ourselves on stage with Amy Steele and Adrian King so I mean that's the kind of show we are but um but we're like 
Well, I know that Adrian had a blast. Oh, I love she. They're just. I mean, let me tell you, those two women are goddamn angels and need to be protected at all costs. Like the second quarantine happened, I emailed them both and I was like, "Please don't go anywhere. We need you forever." And like, <laughs> uh, but I think while we're like as crass and silly and and over the top as we can be, like we also really want to um, try to be smart and to bring a little bit of deep investigation into the real significance and historical context of the things we're talking about um while also pooping ourselves <laughs> well i think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier about horror and drag and things walking hand in hand you can be outrageous but as long as as you stand for something behind that that's always going to have impact you can you can have poop humor all day long but your audience knows that you also stand for something and you both always have stacy's always been a very strong voice in this this landscape and i agree one of one of the most important uh pioneers in the queer horror discussion of kind of the advent of of internet culture uh so it's like that's it you know just keep on doing you and (laughs) you know yeah and you know we both we both come from a place i think we both come from queer punk small town weird kid weird family backgrounds um and we both we both have that love for that sort of diy john waters dreamland players kind of aesthetic of like you know when divine is on screen saying kill everyone now eat shit like (laughs) it's it's so ridiculous and inflated um but there is also a very real rageful queer politic underneath all of it um and it also looks fucking great yeah well before we head off into the night uh i want to ask what is there anything i know we're all pretty much stuck at home so it's a loaded (laughs) question but what's What's next on the horizon? And I will put this to you because you had mentioned the fifth anniversary show of Queer Horror and you had a plan for that. But what is a film that you have yet to show that you've always dreamed? of? Oh, my God. Well, I always say I always say that if Queer Horror ever gets canceled, like if I ever decide like I'm done with it um, and I, I just go before I go full Norma Desmond and just vanish into my mansion, I I really... <laughs> I always say the last sh- film I would ever show is Martyrs. <laughs> and I would sit everyone down. We would watch Martyrs, um, like, right before the ending, you know, like, maybe an hour or half an hour before the end. We would pa- we would hit pause, and then we would all just, like, drink. We would all ha- pass out free wine to everyone. we just all drink and have a good cry, and then we just hit resume on the movie. Because <laughs> um, that <laughs> film is intense, but I love it. Uh so martyrs is a big one um uh in terms of the future my god you know it's i'm working on um a sequel right now to clown down i did a show clown down failed to mount that you mentioned thank you and uh it's just a silly i got so tired of doing tiger lily and being like serious so i wanted to do a show that was just funny so i did a show where carla got crushed by a cabinet that she didn't mount to a wall from ikea (laughs) and um and it's that's just the whole show is her stuck under a cabinet so i'm writing a sequel clown down to clown out of water and it's a spinoff of the shallows where carla gets stuck on a rock in the ocean and the water level is rising because the ice caps are melting um and we'll find out what crazy adventures happen along the way so i'm working on that i'm 
um, actually writing a horror play right now um, that's kind of about growing up and about ghosts uh, because I grew up with sleep paralysis. And so I also have a another handle on the supernatural from like not knowing why demons were sitting on me in my sleep in the middle of the night. Um, and then later finding out that was actually a medical issue. Um, so I'm, I'm working on something along those lines and seeing if I can actually make something scary. Cause so far I only know how to make things that are funny. Um, and yeah, and we'll see where, we'll see where the night takes us. Oh my gosh. Well, you know what listeners, please keep your eyes and ears open for all of those things. And when the world resumes, if you live in Portland and you're not already going to queer horror, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> uh, and if you are looking to make a awesome pilgrimage in honor of all things queer and all things spooky, please, please go and uh, see Carla and tell them that Dead for Phil sent you. Carla, where can people find oh you? Oh my God. Um, so I am, if you type in at the Carla Rossi, I show up on most things. The website is the Carla Rossi.com. Um, and you can find out all about queer horror at queer-horror.com. Our Instagram is at queerhorrorpdx. And then you can also find out about Gaylords of Darkness at gaylordsofdarkness.com and at gaylordsofdarkness. Or gaylordsofd if you're on Twitter, because Stacy is funny. <laughs> You've done this before. I have. Listen, the business card is just seared into the brain at this point. <laughs> I just need a QR code that they could just scan. <laughs> <laughs> well, Anthony, Carla, thank you so much for taking the time to come and talk to me today, talk about your history, talk about your work, talk about everything in between. It was it was a real delight. Michael, thank you for having me and thank you for everything that you do. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, let's uh, Let's unite again in the future for some more spooky queer shenanigans. Ooh, I'm here for it. <laughs> Until then, I'm Michael Verratti. This has been Dead for Filth. Yours always in Glam and Gore. Good night. Good luck. Stay home. Dead for Filth, the Renegade Edition, is a June Gloom production in association with Sister Hyde. Dead for Filth is created and hosted by Michael Verratti and produced by Drew Phillips.